Hello and welcome to Almost 30 Podcast. What's happening, everybody? Hello. <laughs> so excited you're here. <laughs> so happy. It's Lindsay and Krista. Thank you for being here. This is Almost 30 Podcast. If you just stumbled upon it and you have no idea what you're getting yourself into, we have very curious conversations about everything from spirituality to health to our conscious evolution and much, much more. Some things might feel a little bit, you know, outside of your comfort zone, but I feel like those are the conversations that we need to be having. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we've been doing this for about five years now. We're best friends. Lindsay lives in New York. I live in Los Angeles and we're health, wellness, spirituality, all the things. And this conversation today is going to be one for the ages. Yeah, I remember... And I told this to Dr. Zach, but I just remember when I first learned about his work and who he was, and I was like, oh my gosh, if we could get Dr. Zach Bush on the podcast. I remember you. Just, I remember that. That would just be like such a moment and such a, an accomplishment of sorts, but just feel like so incredibly aligned. It was like mm-hmm. one of those things that you just really, really wish for. It took... A, it. He said yes a while ago, but it kind of took scheduling... You know, maneuvering to get it um, on just the calendar. Just so you guys know. <laughs> but he it, said yes a long time ago, you guys. <laughs> just so you guys are aware, right? When I asked for it, it pretty much happened. <laughs> but we've had a lot of people say no. And then, oh, it ca- true. and then it kind of like down the pipeline. They're mm-hmm. like, oh yeah, this is the perfect timing. And with him, like it was, it was really nice to kind of like get on his radar, but then have it just happen at the perfect time. So mm-hmm. yeah, it was just a profound conversation for so many reasons, but it also just simply reminded Krista and I why we do this. Mm -hmm. Yes, I was... Every time I'm like, I don't doubt, but every time I'm just sort of like in the in the day-to-day of life. And so many, you know, so often we all get in that where you're just in the process of life, doing your normal routine, doing your thing, and you forget your why, you forget like the magic Mm -hmm. of being a human on earth and like the the beauty of of what is. And it's just like, every time it's like, God's like, oh, you doubt it again. Mm-hmm. And so I'm addicted to doubting because <laughs> I'm proven wrong. So I just continue to doubt and doubt. Oh. No, but it is just beautiful moments like that. And you guys will hear in this interview and especially, you know, towards the end, there was a whole sermon. We were- Yeah, watch, it on, watch it on YouTube. was happening. <laughs> I was, it was- I actually don't think in our whole podcasting history that that has happened in that where some someone has truly channeled in that way that happened in this interview. And I felt like it was for not only for us but like for our audience. Yes. Like it felt very specific and I don't oh my and gosh, I don't 100%. And I don't know how much Zach knew about the almost 30 community yes. at all to be honest, but please listen all the way through mm-hmm. because this might be something that you want to play for yourself every day. Mm-hmm. I feel Play that. for your children. I know. It is like, it, it's a whole sermon. Mm-hmm. Like if there was, and this is the world, it's like, this would be like the most profound commercial. <laughs> you know, just like the words are like, because you know, like marketing really leverages like your emotions to make you do things because it's the most powerful way to convince you. But it was just like the truth of it. And it felt so... It felt like that whatever was said would never be said again. Mm-hmm. And it felt directly to us like, and to the community. And what I appreciate about, uh, appreciate about Dr. Zach 
so much is his continued ability to change his mind and evolve as new information is presented to him or as he grows and evolves or as he seeks new information. And I think that's really where I want to be at in life is, you know, not surrounded by people that think they're right all the time or are unwilling to change or are unwilling to be wrong or are unwilling to see a different way or a different path or look at old ways and old paths as the way out or as the way that we've gotten in. And it's just a really beautiful way to be. And there was so much about nature and you know coronavirus and how we've really navigated that in the wrong way and then a little bit how we're getting out of it, hopefully the right way. And so this is really going to run the gamut of a lot of different conversations and perspectives and and topics. But I think it is the perfect time for this because I'm feeling personally a little bit less charge in the collective around a lot of things that we talked about. Yeah. And there will be moments in this where you might feel that sense of hopelessness mm-hmm. because I think there are, are some like very real, real facts that he is giving that might just like make your heart sink a little bit. And what I love about Zach's work is that there is always kind of a beauty and a pullback Mm -hmm. so we can see exactly like, not exactly why this is happening, but have a perspective of that. There is a why Mm -hmm. that this is happening. And if we look back, if we look to the science and if we look back in history, like these moments that bring us to our knees like the pandemic did, there is like an opportunity for rebirth and regeneration in the midst of so much kind of like collapse and mm-hmm. and death. So yeah, there's, he was also talking about an expediency of a lot of the natural ways that we can come back to healing as, as a race and as a being like a human race. And yeah, I mean, I knew that I would cry before I was like sitting and I was like, I'm going to cry and I'm not exactly sure why. And then he started speaking about just like the beauty of nature and the beauty of us as humans outside of things that make us feel separate from ourselves. And wow, I mean, so I was crying and I cry I cry a good amount during interviews. So I was like, I didn't know if you were crying or not. And I was like, fuck, I'm crying again in an interview. And, you know, at times it's, it's I'm actually working on my energy management a little bit. So I'm not so in the field of whatever that person's experience is so that I'm not crying all the time. But, and so when I looked at you crying too, I was like, oh my God, dude. And then you look at Zach and he's just, Jesus Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ on screen. (laughs) Fully Jesus Christ. He's literally came back after channeling Jesus Christ. You guys, this is us just saying it, but he never said that he was channeling Jesus Christ, FYI. And it was like, just fully holding his own energy of whatever was said. Yes. And just following the intuition of it. And I'm just really grateful to have the opportunity with our show to bring you all different perspectives. You know, this is what we've been doing since the beginning. We talk about all sorts of topics, death, suicide, near-death experiences, aliens, and just running the gamut of, of our human experience. And so to bring this conversation about the coronavirus, about viruses, about um, nature, about... Our innate ability to heal. Yes. Like we are- Felt overdue. Yeah. As a human body, like we are able to heal and it's that disconnect from literally like the soil. So like 
having our food be kind of dead. It's mm-hmm. not being grown in a, a soil that's alive or just not being outside mm-hmm. this past year and being told to stay inside. And so we're not outside in the elements and just really um, sterilizing mm-hmm. our lives, which we talk about at length, just kind of how that sterilization has been a kind of theme across a lot of different things in our lives. Yeah, he also talks just about the power of community, which mm-hmm. I thought was really beautiful and a reminder um, just about like what we do and why our community is so important. He was saying that healing can happen more quickly if you witness in, witness it in those around you. And that just makes so much sense to me and kind of makes me think of, you know, Lacey's work with To Be Magnetic and having, whether it's expanders or within community, almost like sharing your stories Mm -hmm. of manifestation in her case, but in this case, seeing and witnessing and hearing about healing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that was exactly it too. You know, when we recorded this, we were in our membership enrollment period, which only happens twice a year. And our membership is just so special to Lindsay and I. But for two years, we were on tour. So we got to meet everyone in person all over the world, which was like incredibly powerful and therapeutic and just transformational to be with everyone, to be with all of you. And so the community online with our membership has been even more powerful, but there is that component where you miss the in-person connection. Mm -hmm. So at times I find myself really missing that and hopefully eventually we can come back to seeing people in person. But that reminder of the importance of healing a community was really what I needed to hear. Yes, one of the quotes that I wrote down that Zach said was, when do we fear? When did we fear the face of wisdom? And he was talking about the aging process and how we are so fearful of aging for wrinkles, for sunspots, for sagging skin, whatever it is. And I thought the, the phrase, when did we fear the face of wisdom was just mm-hmm. beyond. Yeah, yeah. I think in that same, that same uh, portion of him talking about just how society has not let see our own beauty. Yeah. So it's like, we're so, we think we like aren't it, you know? And so we strive and that's the same thing with aging. We're like, uh-oh, mm-hmm. uh-oh, the wrinkles are coming in or I heard sunset spots are bad or I should get them lasered or whatever. And society, capitalism, whatever you want to call it, like has not let us see our own beauty and really mm-hmm. kind of like relish in our own beauty. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's so closely linked to us appreciating the beauty around us. It's all mm-hmm. connected. In nature. Yes. Yeah, it's, it is so crazy when you just sit and you think about yourself. You're like, I have eyeballs that are doing magic right now, mm-hmm. allowing me to see what's around me. <laughs> you know, and like, it's just everything works so perfectly together when you're in this body. It's like, oh, I have fingernails that mm-hmm. protect my hands, which I use to like grab, you know, it's like, we are made in perfect divine order. And when we do find ourselves admiring with and being with nature more, you are able to hopefully see your own beauty. And I think there was like a really powerful uh, piece of that that we talked about. Mm-hmm. And in this, when we talk about, you know, in the, the past year, the pandemic, the virus, a lot of the information that we share is really just from the perspective of understanding viruses more so, viruses in general. So, what is the history of viruses? What is our history of understanding viruses? And how can we reframe now that we know that this is something that will be around for a while and has been around? How can we reframe our relationship with viruses and how can we understand them more intricately? And what their purpose is. Yes. Yeah, which I didn't realize actually. Same. He was talking about fevers, which stood out to me. I, I recently had a fever. It was kind of random. I hadn't been sick in a long time, but, and he, 
described a similar situation of having not been sick for a while and then he got sick and it was just this opportunity for, yeah, like a regeneration. Mm -hmm. Like it just is really a powerful, viruses can be really powerful for the body if you allow them to be. And by the way, this is not a blanket statement. I know there are very specific cases that Mm -hmm. um, are serious and need obvious uh, more attention or medical attention. But um, he was saying that to suppress something like a fever, go right to the Tylenol and try to get the fever down is not necessarily what the body is asking for. Mm -hmm. And it can be like a really um, powerful way to the body to kind of like Mm re-regulate. And I kind of felt that when I had the fever because I didn't take anything for it. But I was like, oh, this is like, for some reason, I was like, this is kind of powerful for my body. Mm -hmm. And I need to kind of like, be with this and mm-hmm. not do anything. It's mm-hmm. uncomfortable to have fever, but it's like, yeah, like, what are you saying? What is this? What yeah. are you telling me? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's, you know, the approach that we always want to, always want to hit it at. Okay, let's get into this episode. I know you all will really enjoy it. Make sure you're subscribed to the podcast. So just go on to wherever you listen to podcasts, subscribe. And then if you'd like to write us a kind review, that has been so nice to help the show. Um, Share this one with a friend. I think this will be one that will be everlasting and one that will be really beneficial for community and conversation and just increasing connection, you know, with those that you love. So definitely share this episode of us with Dr. Zach. Yeah, you can find more about Dr. Zach on Instagram at Zach Bush MD and his website, Zach Bush MD has everything um, that he has started and supports. So make sure to follow him. Enjoy this one and we'll see you on the other side. We love you. Major announcement from Almost 30. We are hosting Space Camp on January 28th. This is our favorite event of the year. Camp Almost 30 has gotten a little bit of a rebrand because we were feeling like, I think we're ready to really go there (laughs) with our community. So we are welcoming guests who we feel have really taken us to a whole other planet in our interviews and in our conversations with them. So guests like Brie Melanson, she is going to be doing a workshop on psychic development, find and tap into your gifts. She is a teacher and channel and one who has really been such a support and teacher for Krista and I throughout the years. We are welcoming Jordan Younger. So she is going to help us find our galactic origins. She is the podcast host of the Balanced Blonde podcast. She's an author. She's a spiritual teacher. We're also welcoming Lee Harris, who recently was on the podcast in a two-part episode, and he is going to channel the Z's live for us. How special. He does not do this often, so we feel very, very, very lucky. And we will also be welcoming Sandra Walter. So she is going to be teaching on Ascension 101 the crystalline grid and higher realm support. She is so special. She's a light worker and teacher and has been on the podcast. And Kristen and I are going to be sharing a very, very, very special experience, heavenly coated Reiki infused sound bath. And I'm excited for you all to join us. So this is happening on January 28th from 10 to 2 p.m. PST. Make sure you sign up. Space is limited, but it's absolutely free absolutely free. We're excited to welcome you. And this is the kickoff to membership opening. So membership is going to be open indefinitely now. So you can join membership for six months at a time and really, really focus uh, and support your growth. It is our favorite place to just come and be 
ourselves and really get super intimate with you all, more intimate than on the podcast. So I'm excited for you all to join the membership, but head to almost30.com slash space dash camp. That's almost30.com slash space dash camp space dash camp. (laughs) Say that 30 times. Almost30.com slash space dash camp to sign up for camp. Absolutely free. We will see you on January 28th. Welcome, Dr. Zach. (laughs) We are so grateful to have you. It's been a really long time coming. We've been huge fans of yours for quite some time. And I feel like for both Lindsay and I, it was really made clear to us in the past couple of years how important your voice is in this work and in this space. And I first heard about you from Rich Roll, and then you were on our dear friend Lacey Phillips podcast of To Be Magnetic. And um, I think now is going to be a perfect time for our conversation and to really dig into a lot of the work that you're doing. Something that I think of when I think of you is someone that is very much doing things differently and very much speaking a lot of truth that I support, that Lindsay supports, and saying things that I feel like a lot of the medical industry doesn't always say or acknowledge. And that has to do with a lot of history, that has to do with a lot of nature, that has to do with a lot of spirituality and connection. And I was always curious, you know, have you ever felt like a little bit of an outsider within the medical community because you see things so holistically and because you have such a beautiful, like cohesive symbiotic edge? I appreciate being with you and all the audience. That helps me not feel like an outsider. (laughs) Um, I think that... uh, I, I, I suppose. I mean, I, I grew up in that system so well. So I, I, I grew up for 17 years in academic medicine and I thrived there. I loved it. I loved my research that I did there. I was you know, just amazed every day that I was in academia at the beauty of nature that I got to see under the microscope every day in my lab. And I, the colleagues that I work with are extraordinary people. And so I loved being, you know, an intensivist in the ICUs. I loved being at that life and death cusp uh, every day. And I, I loved uh, the advantages of uh, community that you have in that space. And so my my heart and you know, life really goes out to you know, all of my colleagues in, in allopathic medicine. They're some of the best people I know. But certainly the, the toolbox that we are handed as physicians and certainly the, the worldview that we are asked to participate in is extremely limiting uh, and it wears on us and it's it's tough to be human and having such intense human experience that you have as a physician and feel like your hands are tied or you're not given an effective toolbox and so to be around death and dying every day in the hospitals uh, you know is such an intense experience for any person but then to feel like you're dying inside somehow and you don't know why is really frightening. And, and I think we think that that's a character flaw. We take on, uh, you know, a lot of guilt or, or a sense of loneliness or all of this in that context, not realizing it's the, it's the box we were given, not us that's, that's failing. And so I certainly, by the end of that 17 years was in a pretty deep depression and I had had a number of colleagues commit suicide. Physicians commit suicide at about twice the rate of, uh, the average Americans and all of this. And I think it has to do with this disconnect between our altruistic reason for doing all of the stuff we did. You know, doctors don't go to school because they love taking tests. Doctors don't go to all of that effort because they love 
being in massive amounts of school debt. They, they do it because they want to make an effect on human lives. And when it grinds into a bureaucratic experience and the pharmaceutical toolbox creates as many problems, if not more than it solves, it starts to feel like, you know, uh, you're the finger in the dike of the dam and the dam is already broke. You know, the, the chronic disease epidemics that began in the late 1990s when I was just, just coming into the physician environment had, you know, by the late 2000s completely exploded and, and we were in a deluge of, of chronic disease that does not respond well to any drugs. Uh, chronic disease is an epidemic of of environmental insult and environmental energy injury. And we're not given tools that, that modify that, that environment. And so that's in the long answer, I suppose, kind of paints the picture of what it feels like to be um, a modern doctor is, is you're in a modern epidemic of disease and you're given incredible, powerful tools to change biology for a moment, but it's almost, you know, instantaneously gone, whatever effect you do, you know, in the ICUs, you, increase the epinephrine so the blood pressure will go up and then minutes later it's going back down again and then you have two heart pass from heart rate turn on beta blockers slows mm-hmm. it down for a moment and then moments later it's out of control again and so you're like chasing like symptoms mm-hmm. all the time yeah and so you know i think when when i consider my life now i feel much more embraced and uh much more at home uh than i did in academia despite the difference in mentality and change in mindset and everything else. I feel at home and embraced because my patients are part of my life now. And I, in hindsight, when you're in allopathic medicine, you feel like you're there to serve the patients, but they, they somehow feel against you, you know, uh, because they're not in the, in the pharmaceutical mindset and they're asking for tools and, and advice you can't give. And and so there's this adversarial defensiveness that sneaks into the relationship. And now that's gone, you know, and for the last decade, I've had this blessing of being able to be in a clinical environment where I get to listen to my patients for hours. And that's, there's just not time for that in allopathic medicine. And when you listen long enough, a patient always tells you why they have what they have, what diseases they're presenting it with, what symptoms they have, what, what are they coming from? What could they do to change it? They typically know the answers, not just the problems. And so I have this blessed experience now of being able to listen long enough to be part of the part of my patient's experience instead of a micromanager of their experience. And you know, it's a, an exciting thing to feel less lonely because of my patients. And, you know, I think I've been introduced to a, a broad spectrum of, of practitioners out there way beyond the allopath that, that totally embrace my worldview. And so I've got, you know, Ayurvedic nutritionists and Yagoski therapists and energy therapists and acupuncturists and traditional Chinese medicine docs. And all of these people have been, have always believed what I now believe, you know? And so I feel more uh, in community than I did when I was in academia, which is kind of a bit of a, a, a cutthroat environment. So I don't know if you cared for all those details, I did, but yeah. I think it's worthwhile <laughs> to reflect on that. Can you talk about that transition from when you kind of like woke, mm-hmm. awoke out of what you thought you had to do or be within the medical profession in order to, quote, be successful or make it or treat people? Did you have kind of an awakening of sorts? 
Yeah, I think it happened in a number of steps. And unfortunately, I wasn't depressed for 17 years. That would have been horrific. I don't think I would have survived oh, that. Right. Yeah, I was going to say, I was like, it was just the end. <laughs> yeah, it got me down for sure. And I'm going to start a We're going to clip that. <laughs> and, uh, and it was that depression that helped wake me up. You yes. know, I, I remember very distinctly, you know, a couple of times when I was depressed of being just amazed at how different the world looked than I had been under the impression, you know, before that. And so it was the first time where I felt like the blinders had been taken off and I could see the world radically differently than I had been used to in those first, you know, 40 years or whatever it was at that point. And, and so there's something raw about depression where everything is like so sharp and edgy and there's no filter left and you're being ground down. And then on another level of where you feel like you're supposed to feel, you're, you're insulated. You can't feel anything that you feel like you're supposed to have. So it's this bizarre mashup. And in that desperate experience, I was, was calling out, you know, in meditation, prayer, anything I could think of, just like, I have to have a way out. I, I cannot survive like this. And, you know, this is not what I signed up for kind of feeling in my body and soul. And it was, you know, a number of things that started to shatter my worldview at that time. But a big one was my cancer research uh, had taken a, a interesting turn where I was starting to develop chemotherapy compounds from vitamin A. And it was my first foyer into the possibility that food could actually be medicine at a deep level. You know, and it wasn't like, oh, food is medicine, feel good. Kind of, it's like, no, this is literally potent chemotherapeutic compounds within the food, you know, and that was, that was really an interesting twist because it, it took it. Doctors are not taught nutrition at all. And, and so we have this vague notion of like, oh yeah, nutrition's important, but we don't know what to recommend. And, you know, we're, we're as confused as the public typically as, as allopathic doctors is what you should be eating. And, and so in that though, I was starting to realize I, I got sold short on this food thing. Like there's something really technologically advanced in this nutrition that is superseding the kind of poisons that we had been using for chemotherapy. And instead of chemical compounds, I was starting to use food compounds that were able to work within the body systems. It wasn't toxic for the body to, to, to you know, metabolize these compounds. And yet when they touched tumors, they, they, they would die through such an interesting process. And if you give a typical chemotherapeutic agent, it causes massive injury to every cell in your body. And you're hoping to overwhelm the cancer cells that have an impaired capacity for repair and allow the healthy cells to deal with that damage and try to repair themselves back. So you're always trying to poison the patient just at the right dose to get the cancer, but not destroy them. And of course, they have all kinds of toxic side effects to the chemo and I mean, they lose their hair and bleeding from the gums and their blood counts disappear and the immune system gets depressed. All that happens. And then you hope that they can rebuild that body once you stop the poison. It's so much different in the food. You know, the, the vitamin A compounds would induce something called apoptosis, which is more or less a programmed cell suicide where the cell realizes it's too damaged to repair. And it goes into this gentle elimination process of itself. It, it almost looks like bubble tea or something like that. It like dissolves from inside the cell and it requires no immune system. It requires no inflammation. It's just this very silent, gentle letting go of life that the cell does at that moment. And in so doing, it calls in a stem cell to replace it with a completely new cell. And so it was the, 
in this mission, I was starting to realize, man, we, we use these sledgehammers to try to kill disease, not realizing the body is equipped to do this every single day. And in fact, it is doing it every single day from the birth. We are always eliminating cancer cells in our body naturally. And so it was just one of these humbling and almost overwhelmingly frustrating moments of like, how come I hadn't been told that the body can heal? And there is not a single course in medical school called healing. There's not a single course that tells you the body can fundamentally repair itself all of the time and does. You're taught to believe in disease. And for this fundamental problem that we are in, we have a medical system that looks like it does. We spend, you know, $3.8 trillion a year. We're approaching $4 trillion a year in, in, in spending on our healthcare system, which does nothing for health. It's disease management, right? There's not any of that $4 trillion that, that supports healing and, and, and acceleration of repair mechanisms in the body. It's all damage control. It's all you know, symptom management. $4 trillion is an insane amount of money. In the United States, we only have 300 million people here. And so you're looking at spending about almost $10,000 per person per year, man, woman, and child to, to disease manage 10 grand a year to disease manage this country. And the size of that is now an astounding amount of our GDP, our gross domestic product. You know, we're at maybe 17 trillion or something like that at GDP. And you imagine, you know, 4 trillion of that is just being generated by selling drugs, pharmacy, chemo, you know, all the drugs. And so we are stimulating the economy to the tune of something massive compared to even you know, the next budget lines below that, the entire food system in the United States, the all agriculture, all the food, that's only 1.8 trillion. All of the energy sector, you know, massive energy sector, that's like 2.8 trillion. Uh, you know, oil and gas and electricity, you think about those are the, the robber barons of old. They were the ones that built, no, that pales in comparison to the healthcare industry. Oh, well, what about military spending? We only spend $700 billion a year. So we're 4x, 5x the amount of military spending on disease management. And that's a scary thing for an economy when you start to think about the fact that for every dollar we're spending on disease management, there's less productivity in those people that we're treating. And so we see the end of our empire, the United States as a colonial slash, you know, extractive, destructive empire is on its last, you know, gasps of life because the main driver of our economy is disease. And if we start to decrease the amount of disease, our economy fails. And so why do we act like we do around something like this pandemic? Why did we spend so much more money and have the worst death rates in the world? It's because we had to spend money on this thing. We needed the economic stimulus of disease. And that's a frightening state for any, any nation state to be in. We are in a, a desperate state of affairs across the board. But it's interesting that it comes down to this crisis moment. And so that's a lot of my awakening. I was running think tanks around uh, the insurance companies at the time in the early 2000s with Cigna and Anthem Blue Cross Blue Shield. We had all these CEOs traveling to the University of Virginia. And I was a chief resident at the time. And so I was uh, on faculty like as a teaching role that year. And I was helping organize these think tanks. And I was amazed at the short-sightedness of the biggest people in this industry who are saying, look, we, we have to get more people insured because we're in the death spiral of insurance at that point. So every 1% increase in cost of healthcare, 1% of people were jumping out of healthcare. 
or out of their insurance, which meant that the following year, more sick people were being insured than healthy people. Healthy people were rejecting because it was too expensive to, to bother with. And so we were consolidating the sick people into insurance. And unfortunately, at that point, we were at six to 8% increases in costs every single year, which meant six to 8% of the people were jumping out. And so by 2005, it was pretty obvious that by the end of that decade, by 2010, the entire uh, insurance industry would be bankrupt. It was insoluble. And so it was called the death spiral of insurance. And we were in the midst of that. And the solution was to get more people insured. And so it got attributed to Obama, but I guarantee it didn't matter which president was in office that next, you know, at the end of the 2000s, that Affordable Care Act was going to get passed because we had a bankrupt system. And so that was the only last stopgap that got put in place to make sure that everybody was forced to insure again to get all those healthy people paying premiums to offset the extraordinary cost of the sick people. And so that's when I started to really ask them these deeper questions of like, where are we headed with this? Like this, this is, so we get everybody insured again, that only gives us another eight, 10 years, and then we're going bankrupt again. And so that would be 2020. So Affordable Care Act gets passed, 2019, 2020, we're going bankrupt again. And then thank God for a pandemic that stimulated $4 trillion of spending that was given in, because if we didn't have that at that moment, we go bankrupt again. And so we need to start to understand the macroeconomics of the disease narratives that we're being thrust into because they don't have to do entirely with disease. They have to do with an, an ecosystem of, of economics that is going bankrupt for a failure to understand its, its really root cause problems and root cause solutions. Yeah, this is like my, <laughs> this is like one of my favorite topics of all time. Just always pulling up and seeing the larger picture of the puppetry that's happening with the different types of industries and the governments and the ways in which that people are manipulated and the ways in which we are fed something that is different than what is happening at the highest levels where you know the narrative around the affordable care act is like to get everyone healthcare but if, you know it's sort of this game where it is doing that but then also too we're bailing out pharmaceuticals or we're just supporting pharmaceutical companies or insurance companies more so actually insurance more company insurance companies from being bankrupt um so in your sort of moving out of uh, medicine and it's almost like you went through a spiritual awakening of sorts where you have the dark night of the soul of depression and it sort of wakes you up and you're looking at things differently you're looking at your studies differently you're looking at these systems differently was there ever a time and period um and you seem super integrated now, so this is why I ask, were you really frustrated about the way that everything was structured and what was going on in the world? And you felt, I don't know, it just, I can imagine all the information that you know and that you see so clearly, it sometimes can feel frustrating. Do you, did you ever have to integrate a lot of the anger of seeing the truth of everything? I think that that is the journey that I'm currently in. Um, you know, the, the longer I, I build this integrative mindset around whether it's health or energy or you know, macroeconomics, the, the food system at large, you know, the, more, the more I see it clearly, the more frustrating it gets on one level. And um, I just have to keep surrendering it. You know, I, I don't know why this is our journey, but it is our journey. And we have to be humble about that. And we need to be willing to accept that, you know, like, you know, we, we are short-sighted as, as a species. We always have been. We, we are uh, fundamentally narcissistic as, as a species. We cannot 
break the mold of thinking of ourselves as the center of the universe, no matter how much data we get that we're not the center of the universe, we can't shake that belief. Uh, we have this manifest destiny attitude where because we're the most intelligent thing on the species on the planet, we should be able to abuse the planet however we see fit, you know that. And so I don't know why it's our journey. And it is very easy to slip into the anger and the frustration and a sense of hopelessness about it. What are we doing? It's all ass backwards to the science that we've known for 30 years. This isn't like, this is literally a step back to some previous century of belief systems. And so I can get tied up in that emotional journey. But then I have to shake it off and just kind of try to make myself smile for a moment and be like, I wonder why. I, I, I wonder why. What the hell are we doing this for? What message are we trying to get through to ourselves? What, what curiosity gets triggered after this? Thank goodness for, for extinction, you know, whatever that is. Like, you know, so that you, I think we just have to remember that, yes, it, it, it denotes and demands an emotional processing, but we need to, as quickly as we acknowledge those emotions, let go of the emotions and acknowledge the journey. The journey is real. The emotions are, are perturbations of our brain. <laughs> they may or may not be relevant to the, the situation, but the journey is real. We are killing the planet. We are killing ourselves. We hate each other more every day as humans. Uh, the polarization in this country and in this world right now has only been seen a couple times in history at this, you know, this level of pitch. And so we, we are in it. We're in a tipping point moment. And I'm just grateful to be able to be around humans that are curious. I'm grateful for you two that you would drive that curiosity, and not just for yourselves, but for uh, your large audience of just saying, what is it to be human right now? What, what is it that we need to learn right now? Because there's some incredibly steep learning curves that we have an opportunity to engage in now, because nothing is going to be the same in 10 years. Nothing's going to be the same in 30 years. The amount of disease and, and death we're going to see in these next few years this pandemic was a small, you know, rumble strip on on our, you know, trek into, you know, jumping off the cliff of of human life here, and so we we handled it very poorly. Uh, we we were not prepared for even, you know, a few hundred thousand deaths. What happens when that's a millions of deaths? Uh, we are not ready for that, and it will be a, a massive humanitarian disaster as it uh, we've already glimpsed. And uh, we haven't seemed to take the opportunity to learn from this recent opportunity that, that you know, posed to us. And that's concerning because it's going to if, if that wasn't enough to make us ask about the fundamentals of our beliefs about allopathic medicine or macroeconomics or U.S. economics and the Fed printing all this money out of nothing. If we're not asking some deep questions right now. Uh, we're, we're, something bigger is going to have to happen. And certainly the collapse of the United States economy will be an important part of that. I think it, it'll be a necessary catalyst to change around the world. Uh, we keep palliating a, an international, you know, uh, codependence on the U.S. dollar. And uh, we, you know, if that finally collapses in these next couple of years, we will have to create a new paradigm. And that that will be good for everybody, uh, as hard as it will be, and as as much poverty as that's going to plunge the world into, uh, we need that poverty to to rebuild from probably because the wealth that we've created is profoundly destructive, extractive, and 
uh, is a, its own form of colonialism and, and slave-inducing kind of economies around the world. So we, we are at this pinnacle of, of, of crisis, not just in health, but in economics and in sociopolitics, and it's, uh, frankly, spiritual uh, crisis. And I think we feel that increasingly each day. And so we see you know, Los Angeles, I was just told uh, recently by my wife that there's 500 ayahuasca ceremonies every weekend in Los Angeles now. <laughs> like, well, maybe that's a sign of, of somebody seeking. Um, and <laughs> it's so, also you know, like the colonialism if, if are, where it's like, this is an extreme, you know, it's like <laughs> extreme ayahuasca. <laughs> All in Beverly Hills. Yeah. Yes. Um, just quickly on that. I just wanted to thank you for answering that yes. because I feel like and especially at the beginning of our interview, because I feel like a lot of people that know your work um, and know of all the topics that you're talking about, it can be hard at times to really look at the way in which we're operating and interacting with each other, with nature, with so many different things. So it's helpful for you to really explain and kind of tap into that feeling and emotion that you feel very so often, because I also experience that as well. And I know a lot of our community does too. but one out of eight couples struggle with infertility. It's kind of staggering. Most people don't know and or aren't ready to talk about it. And the thing is, we really need good data and information about our bodies in order to have informed conversations with our doctors and make the best decisions for ourselves and for our future. Sometimes we can be so lost in the shame of it all that we forget to really take action and figure out our best options. And that's why Modern Fertility was created. I've been having fertility conversations with a lot of you in my DM, so I'm excited to talk about Modern Fertility. It's an easy and affordable way to test your fertility hormones at home. Major, major. With a simple finger prick, you mail it in with a prepaid label, and you'll get personalized results within six business days, okay? And you'll get insight into your hormone levels, like your ovarian reserve, aka if you have more or fewer eggs than average for your age, and other important factors that can impact your fertility. The results really go deep into what every hormone means, and you can also download the results to review with your doctor for next steps. Just to give you a sense traditional hormone testing at a fertility clinic can cost over $600. But Modern Fertility tests the same general set of hormones at a fraction of the price. And if you go to modernfertility.com slash almost 30, you can get $30 off your test. Plus you can get reimbursed for the test through your FSA, HSA. If you want kids today or maybe one day in the future, clinically sound info about your body can help you make that decision that's right for you. So right now, Modern Fertility is offering our listeners $30 off the test when you go to modernfertility.com slash almost 30. This is limited time. So take advantage now. That means your test will cost $149, which is really, really great. Hormone testing at a fertility clinic, again, can cost three times as much. Get $30 off your fertility test when you go to modernfertility.com slash almost 30. That's modernfertility.com slash almost 30. And I feel like in you know the last year and a half, two years, like we have been and we've witnessed just the living out of fear. And you know, you mentioned earlier this fear of death that you have seen and experienced either with patients or just even on a global scale this past year. I'm curious, you know, how that has an effect on 
our physical body, our energetic body, because I think that's why (laughs) for me, it was so hard last year where it was just kind of this epidemic of fear that that is what was kind of so um, assaulting on my on my system. So I just love to kind of talk about fear and how that affects our body and our health. Yeah, there's a lot of data on that and it's and it's frightening data. <laughs> and so yeah, the data is uh very clear that stress of any type, but especially stress around this sense of impending doom is the sentence that's used in medicine, which is interesting, but that's the that's the most reported description of an anxiety attack a sense of impending doom. And so when you get that sense of impending doom and then you have a you know trillion dollar global media, you know, amping up this fear message every single day that there is impending doom and we're all going to die of this virus and all this, you know, fear 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 and you're going to kill your the elders around you and you're going to be a vector of disease and they they create this huge you know narrative around this whole thing. The amount of fear that creates um, is, you know, we don't have even the metrics to to kind of, you know, measure that at the public health level. But at the individual level, what we know that immediately happens is we induce a, a suppression of the immune system. And the immune system is a relationship between you and the greater world around you. We used to think that the immune system was there to sterilize your bloodstream and sterilize your body from bacteria and fungi and yeasts and viruses. We now know we're completely wrong about that, you know, and that's where this pandemic has, you know, taken a really erroneous turn is to believe that we're being attacked by these microbes, these viruses, or the rest. Suppression of the immune system leads to a, a breakdown in this this biodynamic relationship that is in, in play every single day in every single body. My body right now has ten to the fifteen viruses in my bloodstream right now not 10 to the 15 copies of a virus, 10 to the 15 different viruses are in my bloodstream right now. And I'm in perfect relationship to that billions of viruses because my innate immune system has recorded each DNA strand, RNA strand as it comes into the cell and says, yes, I want this. No, I don't want this. Yes, I want this. No, I don't want this. And there's one enzyme called Cas9 that's responsible for this. Interestingly, the woman who who discovered Cas9 and all of its functions won the Nobel Prize of uh, Medicine in 2020, in the very year that we had this pandemic. But the Nobel Prize was given because Cas9, instead of being recognized for being the entire secret to how we stay in relationship with viruses, had been co-opted by the genetic engineering uh, science to be a, a primary tool as to how to genetically engineer other organisms. And so she won the Nobel Prize for the solution to the pandemic, but in, in, you know, copted in this message of genetic engineering could save the planet. And so it's just a very interesting way that we know the immune system works and and keeps us in balance with this ocean of, of, you know, genomic data out there that we call the virome or all the viruses. And as soon as you have fear, you screw up the, the whole messaging signaling system around Cas9 and you can start to get dysregulated relationship and you can start making viral proteins that aren't necessary to your body right now. And you can go into too much protein production and that overwhelms inflammatory patterns in the body and then you get sick. And so we know that uh, fear, uh, and which can be measured by norepinephrine, epinephrine, cortisol levels and all these kind of counter-regulatory stress hormones, 
is a fundamental way in which we undermine it. And fear combined with sleep de- deprivation are, are probably the two most potent ways to suppress the immune system. And the best way to, to screw up sleep is to have fear-inducing, you know, um, blue light, you know, television messages in your face all evening right before bed, you know? And so you're glued to the television, watching all of the death around you, and then you try to go to sleep. And we know we had a pandemic of, of you know, uh, sleep disorder because of people losing their jobs and lost their day-night rhythms and stayed up all night watching television. And uh, we saw Netflix and, you know, all these massive, you know, media companies go through the roof with content consumption as everybody did that. We saw the, the consumption of alcohol and recreational drugs, as well as opioids and, and pharmaceutical uh, drugs and the narcotics just shot through the roof. So everybody was drugging themselves and eating themselves silly and screwing up sleep patterns. And then we did the next steps around the fear, which was you're, you can't trust your neighbor. You need to isolate. And we know that isolation is a death nail to the immune system. And so the fear that we drove ourselves into and we went and hid in our houses was the exact opposite thing we should have done if we had really believed there was you know, a, a virus in the environment that we needed to find balance with. We should have rushed outside together. We should have had massive parties out on beaches and on mountaintops and they probably should have been naked. You know, like we should have just been like, like wallowing in nature and we would never have had this pandemic. Uh, whether it was militarized virus or a natural virus, it doesn't matter. The immune system can handle any of those. And, you know, a lot of people say, well, this was a militarized virus. And I'm like, well, it doesn't matter in the sense that 99.9 people, you know, that see this virus continue to be fine in the light of that virus. And so if we're going to keep, you know, damning the source and stop focusing on our capacity to heal and be resilient in the face of that virus, we're still going to miss the point. And, and we polarize ourselves out of the arguments of like virus came from here or there. It's from a pig or it's from some pangolin in a Chinese marketplace. No, it's from it's from the environment. And maybe humans participated in that or not. The fact is, th- this is happening right now. What do we need to do to be resilient in the face of that? We need to be together and we need to be out in nature. Seven hugs a day is enough to reduce your risk of a, a, a respiratory virus by 30 to 40 percent. There is nothing we've ever done in medicine that's reduced that risk by 30 or 40 percent. You know, flu vaccines, all of this, you know, decades of flu vaccines, you know, 0.1 percent, 1 percent decrease in risk. All of these vaccines we're giving for coronavirus, absolute risk reduction at best 1 percent, 30 percent risk reduction if you get seven hugs a day. Okay, so the immune system is built on the opposite of fear. Fellowship and connection is the whole story of what we would call the immune system. And so we did exactly the wrong thing by creating the fear paradigm that would drive us away from each other, drive us into sequestration. We should have embraced one another and done it outside and encouraged each other to get back into the nature that, that allowed us to occur in the first place. And so uh, we have a real opportunity to move out of the fear, uh, but we're going to have to decide that nature's not against us. Two, I have two questions. With the hugs, do animals count or is it, does it have to be a human body? Like, could you hug an animal and would that touch count to the seven, <laughs> the seven hugs? 
That's a good question. I, I, I believe so. I, that study hasn't been done to my knowledge, um, but there's other studies looking at the impact of particularly dogs. Um, and it's uh, we used to think that it must be the emotional connection and all of this that allows for that. And there's there's got to be some of that there, you know, redu- reducing fear with a pet is real. And so if that it reduces your fear, that's going to benefit your immune system. But as a microbiome doctor, <laughs> that spends most of my time thinking about bacteria, fungi, and viruses and how they interact with the human body. Dogs are, are, are the penultimate uh, you know, agent of health in that a dog will wallow out in a garden and yard and tear around and, and go to a dog park. And, and they have this innate knowingness that the best way to get to know somebody and to, to share in their strength and, and wellness is to sniff each other's butt, right? And so they're at the dog part, all the dogs are sniffing each other's butts and they're running around smelling each other's microbiome, getting this sense of it. And then they jump up in your face and lick you all over the face when they get home, you know? And so they are probably the best fecal transplant, you know, uh, vector that we've found so far as a good dog in the house. And so that dog in the home is creating a microbiome diversity that the humans have forgotten they needed. And the humans are no longer living a lifestyle that connects them back to the dirt in the same way that dog is connected. And so the dog, I think, brings, you know, an, a, another unique you know, source of health and reconnecting us to nature. Uh, and so maybe the hugs to the dog are important. But I, I would say that even beyond that, the gift of, of nature back and a gift of joy back, you know, uh, are real, you know. And, and I think that uh, dogs uh, demonstrate that the joy of nature and that, you know, you watch them so excitedly run to go smell the bushes. And to, to go dig in their, their hole and chew on their bone, the, just the raw enthusiasm that a dog has for being alive is really the message of, of what we should be pursuing in ourselves. Like, I should wake up just like insanely excited to drink my same cup of tea, tea I do every day. You know, the dog, when you put down that bowl of food, it's beside itself with excitement. It's like, oh, my God, the exact same food again. Yes. You know, this is amazing. That is that there's something to that personality of the dog that I think it shows us something of of who we should be more like and and we should be exuberant to uh, touch each other, smell each other, you know, be up in each other's, you know, microbiome. We, We need to be sharing the news of the day as to which bacteria did you find today? What what plants did you touch today? Uh, What food did you dig out of the earth today? And so that's that's an exciting you know kind of thing I think to think about how do we start to remap a, a household around nature and joy and reconnection and the hugs and the and the biome and the pets are all part of that. Yeah, they're a huge part of it for me. You know, and just pulling back to what you were talking about when you are talking about the way in which we handled the pandemic and everything that went on with um, coronavirus in the past year. What I guess is happening where people understand innately what we should be doing, but we're being fed like a different sort of set of information. And you mentioned it earlier on in the interview where you said, you know, it's a dark time in medicine right now. So where are we really going wrong where the information that we're being told and fed is telling us to stay inside, to not hug people, to not touch people. And then there's also the other set of medicine research and information that is saying that you know, being outside in vitamin D is really important. T- touching other people and getting their microbiome is important. Where has that break happened? 
And what do you think is going on where there's two seemingly dissenting sets of information and rhetoric that's being shared? I think it kind of boils down to the, to the fear paradigm, right? So if for a moment you believe that there is a virus that's going to attack humanity and the virus travels to the air and the virus can be exchanged through respiratory droplets uh, between humans, if that's your entire worldview, then we did exactly the right thing. We should run away from each other. We should hide away from the, the air. We should, you know, that science and belief about viruses, you know, being these airborne vectors of disease that that attack, you know, healthy humans all over the place is very old science. That that's, you know, we're at least 30 years, but you know, a lot of that's built on our our beliefs around the work out of the Salk Institute and all of this in the in the mid-20th century. So you know, 70, 80 years ago, we developed this, you know, really potent belief in the germ theory around microbes. And we thought at the time that the human body in health was totally sterile. And so then we studied for the next 50 years, cancer, heart disease, all these things in sterile Petri dishes and proved out our belief that human cells are, can't repair themselves. They're, they're always just kind of doing chaos control, damage control, trying to stave off disease. It's because we never studied any of this stuff in the context of nature. And that was you know, the big pivot point for my career. After I left academia in 2010, I started my own nutrition center in rural Virginia. And uh, in rural Virginia, I was in a very impoverished county, you know, kind of fifth generation poverty, which coming from the West, I had never seen before, right? The, the West, you know, California was just created 100 years ago. So, you know, it's just like, we don't know multi-generational poverty in the West. You go and go to the East Coast and, you know, I, I live on a little, uh, you know, farm road, country road that is third generation freed slaves, you know. Uh, and so we are that close to, you know, slavery in the South. And, you know, the schools in, in, in Alma County weren't desegregated until 1972. And so, like, the the poverty, the slavery, the the abusiveness of the colonialism, all of that is very present in this environment. So it's a massive awakening for me, you know, so psycho-spiritually, psycho-emotionally, psycho-politically, to understand that this is this is not some you know vast passive history. This is current affairs, this this system of slavery that we've propagated now through the prison system is really obvious when you're out in rural Virginia or other parts of the rural South. We've created prison systems that enslave our, our minorities in, in the inner city and in rural communities in these really dark ways. And so I was suddenly, you know, a primary care doctor. I was you know, thrust out of academia where I was a sub-sub-specialist and I you know, never was responsible for anybody's whole picture. I got it, came in and gave very specific advice on a case and whatever, as an endocrinologist or whatnot. And suddenly I was just a rural doc and I was responsible for everything that walked in the door. And in that experience, I started to witness, you know, the world much differently. And I started to get this sense that uh, the microbiome, you know, that these people had at their fingertips was much different than I had seen in the city system. Uh, I was asking these people to make radical jumps and changes in their uh, lifestyles, a, a nutrition center that was was teaching a plant based diet, and so I was teaching people who literally were the heart and soul of the chicken industry, poultry industry, and the cattle industry. And so I had cattle farmers and poultry farmers that were going plant based vegan to reverse their diabetes and deal with their cancer or whatever they were dealing with. 
And the speed at which some of these individuals were healing was just dumbfounding. I was like, this wasn't happening at the University of Virginia. What's the difference? And the difference became this reintegration into the microbiome, the sterile Petri dish science of the last 50 years, believing that these viruses were going to attack us and all this started to break down when I saw how resilient and regenerative the biology in these people were because they were in their backyard gardens. As soon as I said, you need to go plant-based, you need to start you know, shopping at the grocery store for kale and Brussels sprouts and everything else. It turns out that's a very expensive way to, to shop. And they said, I can't afford that. But my grandmother who owned my house had a huge garden. What if I grew a garden? Well, that'd be amazing. Grow the garden again. And they would go grow the garden and they would start to heal for the garden more than the food, right? And so you go to the grocery store, you buy conventionally grown kale. 30% of my patients that were, you know, in my program, we're getting sicker on kale. And that drove us down a really interesting pathway of understanding what's wrong with conventionally grown kale. What are the chemicals in there? And that was this big, you know, explosion of data out of our science and our laboratory around Roundup and glyphosate and how that gets into our fruits and vegetables and how that destroys the immune system. And so I was right at this juncture, you know, accidentally and totally unintentionally found myself at this incredible tipping point of science, understanding that People that were outgrowing their own food and in their microbial environment were immediately resilient. And the person who was eating the same food, but conventionally grown from farms they had never seen under chemical pressures they couldn't imagine, were getting sicker eating the same food. And so it was this incredible, you know, scientific you know, experiment that was unfolding in my clinics out there in rural Virginia. And I was seeing again and again my, my fifth generation poverty people taking more responsibility for their health than the CEO that was flying in because they heard that there was some crazy clinic that was helping people heal from things. And I would tell them they need to grow a garden, start eating their own kale. And they'd be like, you don't get it. I work, I, I check emails 14 hours a day. There's no time for a garden. Like what the hell are you talking about? So they would go and buy their kale and everything else and they would not improve. And so, you know, you go buy kale off the grocery store shelf, you do not see the bacteria in the soil systems there. It's been washed 15 times and got some weird irrigation system that's spraying water on, on it during its you know, storage on the shelves of the grocery store. And it was shipped from Peru under ethylene gas. And like just the whole system of food is so messed up. And I was getting to watch that fail. And I was watching the failure of, of medicine within food in conventional ag versus the backyard garden. So that was really the turning point. So when you ask a simple question like, why are we so polarized around the belief of this virus? It's because some of us are living in an environment that is so disconnected from nature that we, we can only see the disease. We can only see the, the virus as an enemy and, and, it, and it acts as an enemy when we have no vitamin D, we have no nutrition, we don't get good sleep patterns, we are stressed out. That, that virus suddenly looks like a really bad pathogen. But then you watch that same virus in you know, somebody living in the same household who happens to be a cross-country runner and is out on trails every day when they don't get the disease. Same household, breathing the same air, eating the same food, just that little bit of touch in nature. And suddenly you have a completely different disease outcome. And I'm amazed that nobody's been encouraged to look in their own homes for this evidence. If your home saw coronavirus, which is highly likely this year, because you know the last two years, the vast majority of saw this virus in some shape or form, and the vast majority of us were completely fine. Why aren't we being empowered to say, go figure out why you did well? If you did poorly and somebody else in your household did well, what are they doing that you're not doing? But we were never given that empowerment. 
And so the, the polarization is around the observation of disease in, in a sterile Petri dish versus the resilience and regenerative nature of humanity when it's in its nature. And those two worlds have now you know, so polarized us. And there's a multi-billion dollar, well, actually, as I already said, multi-trillion dollar U.S. industry that's dependent on your belief of, of the vulnerability of a sterile ecosystem compared to, you know, a, a almost invisible economic benefit to believing that health is possible. And so we have to decide, are we here to stimulate the economy through quantitative easing through the Fed and printing trillions of dollars to give to the pharmaceutical company to help band-aid up a situation where we're living sterile lives with eating chemically laden foods, you know, and completely separated from, from our reality? Or are we going to say, you know what, we would rather have an economy that's built on resilience and regeneration. We would rather have children be productive in the next 10 years in their work and in their creativity. And that become the foundation of a new economy that doesn't rely on a $3.8 trillion healthcare industry to buoy it up. What if we created an economy of sharing? What if we created an economy of stimulus where we all asked each other each day, you know, what are you most passionate about? What projects are getting you excited? Oh, that sounds rad. How can I help you with that project? You know, can I throw some energy behind that? Uh, can I invest in your project? Like, We need to start that sharing economy where we're not giving away anything, but we're sharing the wealth that comes from shared passions and curiosity and creation. That creativity is going to be our, 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 our only, you know, I think it's probably our only pathway out of our disaster of humanity is to grab onto that one trait that we have, which is curiosity that drives innovation. If we stay curious about an alternative world than we live in today, we can go create that world. I think it's become scary for some people to be curious and to go there. And I feel like we've been, so many of us have been separated from the intuition and what our bodies are telling us and what feels natural. Uh, because of just the constant barrage of just fear-based narratives being projected out all the time. And also just, you know, in what you just said, it was it was really apparent to me this obs- obsession with like, I don't know if this is the word, but sterility, like s- being sterile. It's really, it's really, really fascinating. And just to think about it across different... Yeah. Yeah. I have to think about too, it's like, this is a weird connection, but with religion. It's like the belief that we are inherently sinners and that we're inherently tarnished and we have to continue to make up our go- our goodness. And we have like, we're internally damned. And it's, it's like, almost yeah, part it's of like that. Where it's like, we're dirty. Our, yeah. yeah. Where it's like, we're dirty and we need to continually make up for it. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I was just kind of thinking about that across all different, uh, whether it's our food or it's spirituality or our health. It's just this obsession with keeping things really, really sterile. And to me, that sounds like uh, void of life and the ability to really change and evolve in a healthy, productive way. I do want to just pull on the glyphosate piece for a moment because I don't know if everyone is aware of what that is specifically, what the intention behind introducing it was and why it is such a problem. Very good. Yeah, I think the sterility thing, if I can go back to that for a second, is fascinating um, in that uh, it, it was, you know, in that post-World War II era, <laughs> we developed this belief of sterility and the, the clean home 
And at the same time, we developed the same belief about farms and soil management is that a good managed farm should have no nothing growing in it during the fallow season. It should just be plowed dirt without a single visible weed or plant. And so if you drive today through the Midwest during the winter, you've got thousands and thousands of miles of dirt that's been plowed into death. There's just no living thing on it, which is insanity. And it's why we're seeing global warming. It's not because there's too much CO2 in the atmosphere. It's because the earth can no longer breathe because we sterilize it every fall. And so we have done the same thing in a household with Lysol and all these things they developed in the 1950s and 60s with the chemical companies saying, hey, we could bring these disinfectants into the, into the home just as we're bringing them into the hospitals. And we're going to sterilize the home and we're going to sterilize the hospital. We're going to sterilize the fields. And there will just be just a blank slate opportunity for us to do only what humans want to do. Let's make sure nature can't do what it wants to do. And so we created this bubble around our food system, around our homes, around our children by this sterilization effort. We started the vaccine effort to, to vaccinate our kids so that they couldn't see, you know, chicken pox being a good example of this, you know. Uh, and so with absolutely no idea at the time of why the, the chicken pox virus, that unique herpes virus, stimulates the immune system in such an interesting way and probably helps us with neurodegenerative things and has all kinds of benefits to it that we had no idea at the time. We didn't ask the question even at the time was, are these viruses good for us? Are they actually stimulating our immune system to be more intelligent? Instead, we just saw everything. If you have a fever, that must be bad. You know, no, we, we, we've got the wrong model of sickness. A sickness is a regenerative event. It is, not a, it is not a major setback if we treated it correctly, right? If we thought of it correctly, we would see it as a regenerative event. A fever is one of the most powerful ways to kill cancer cells in your body. And so by interacting with you know, viruses and bacteria, when they see a weakening immune system, they interact with us in such a way that it stimulates us back to a responsive regenerative state. And so when I get flu, it's a reminder to me of like, the reason you have this for the first time in five years, is you're not taking care of yourself and the viruses are there to help stimulate you back into a regenerative state because you're not taking care of yourself. You're not supporting your own regenerative mission. So the viruses are going to do it for you. And so that is what a sickness is, is a regenerative reset. When we rush in and then try to kill the virus and kill everything in that fever, and we try to suppress the fever with Tylenol, and we do all this stuff to like stop the sickness, we can't regenerate. In fact, we just get the, the downstream inflammatory reactions. So we reached 88% mortality in ICUs during COVID because we were trying to crush everything, stop all of that steroids and you know, stop the fevers. You know, and it turned out nobody was really having fevers that were dying. The people that were dying were presenting without signs of infection. They were just showing up with hypoxia, loss of oxygen, carrying capacity. But we didn't focus on that. We just we had such this baked-in narrative that this is an infection, this is a virus, that we kept treating it that way. And so people that were showing up without signs of viral infection, just hypoxia, were being treated as if they were infected. And so we were sterilizing their bodies more and their immune systems completely failed instantly. And so we were killing people through this mission of sterility not understanding that the regenerative effect of, of an interaction with a virus or a bacteria is there to stimulate and kickstart normal biology back again that had been failing. If we rushed in to support that as a farmer or a physician, we would have a much different result. If we don't plow those fields into oblivion in the fall, instead we do a 15 seed cover crop 
The next year, we have the healthiest soil we've seen in generations, one year of cover cropping. And so we just need to keep the soil covered. We need it full of biology. The more diversity, the better. Same thing for your health. You've got to stay covered in the biology. You have to stay you know, steeped in the microbiology. It's steeped in the biodiversity of life itself. And so you're kind of intuitive knowing that sterility equals a, a lack of life is spot on. That is the science of the last 30 years. Sterility is a lack of life. And for that, we die young and we die of horrible disease. We need to reverse that. The other meaning of the word sterility is, is interesting in that it means you cannot reproduce, right? And so when a woman or a male is sterile, we have lost the capacity for reproduction. We use the same term and it's appropriate because reproductivity is reliant on a solid soil, a good soil system microbial diversity, all of that we now know is critical for an endocrine system to be able to support something as complex as fertility. Interestingly, the, chem the chemical companies uh, in the mid-20th century that really dove into how to sterilize humans were the same chemical companies that grow our food today. You know? And so Bayer, uh, was a German company, was part of FK Pharmaceuticals at the time, and the Third Reich used uh, Bayer to study sterilization of the Jews in the concentration camps. And now Bayer owning Monsanto and Bayer having its own chemical GMO crop called Liberty Link blocks the, the amino acid pathways for fertility in soil systems. So it blocks the ability of weeds to be there. It blocks the ability of bacteria to be there. So it sterilizes the soil. But we are the same biology as the soil. And so you, you go and eat that stuff and we become sterile. And so we have been on this sterility mission on two fronts, sterilize us away from bacteria and fungi and sterilize our, our capacity for reproduction for almost a century now. And the science behind that is, is interestingly uh, baked in fear again, is that there's, we are afraid there are too many humans and we're going to kill the planet and we're all going to die because humans are extractive and we have too many humans. Why didn't we instead take the opposite view of Mother Nature is going to find the right balance with the right number of humans as long as we're integrated within nature. If we educate women, the, the birth rate goes from seven to two almost instantly. We should have moved out and in the post-World War II era if we really wanted to, to, to find a, a healthy balance of population on the planet. We should have made it a national mission for every nation in the world to educate as many women as we could. We would have a completely different population right now. We would have a completely different relationship. We'd have a completely different socioeconomic structure, all of that, because the women would have taught us to do it differently. We would have stopped the short-sighted male archetype, goal-oriented type, you know, building of economies. And we would have created a process-oriented, nurturing kind of economic system that allowed everybody to participate and reach their fullest potential as, as any feminine archetype will do, whether that be a feminine archetype in a woman or a male, we, we're both capable of doing either. And I would say that, you know, 99% of the women on the planet are, are living a masculine archetype life. They, they do the same things that the males do. They go out and create the goal-oriented, you know, career path, and they are taught how to think goal-oriented, and they've lost the feminine archetype as much as the male has. And so we are in this sterility state for a loss of understanding of, of the feminine nurture for the feminine archetype of process rather than goal-oriented behavior. And so we are sterilizing ourselves both in the soils and in our gut you know, and to the complete failure of gut microbiome to our own sperm and, and you know, ovaries. 
to the state where we will see our own extinction. You know, and we, we see you know, China radically backpedaling now, begging their, their population to get pregnant because they see a complete collapse of their, their population happening uh, after you know, decades of fearing population explosion and doing you know, one child laws and, and you know, massive abortion policies and everything else that they employ. All of that's gone now because they, nobody wants to get pregnant because they're all, all got middle-class educations and they just want to go build their careers. And so it's just so fascinating to me that we, in this mission of sterility of, uh, of humans and microbes, uh, we engineered our own extinction event and it's, it's upon us now. So that all, you know, is kind of more musings than you maybe want on the concepts of sterility. But then your next, you know, ask about glyphosate ties right in there, right? And so glyphosate came out in the 1970s as the next major chemical that would benefit, you know, the farmer. And it was debuted as a weed killer or herbicide, but it had actually before that been pioneered as a, um, a uh, industrial pipe cleaner. And so the big sewage pipes coming out of chemical plants and the like have a, a chronic problem where they get sludged up, where the mineral content from all the chemical uh, production and stuff like that, these plants will build up on the walls of the pipes. And so they started pouring glyphosate into these pipes as a chelator to tear all those minerals back off of the pipe to open it back up. So it was literally a pipe cleaner initially. The problem was whenever they did, did this on the municipal level, there was so much glyphosate pouring through that, that as soon as that glyphosate hit the, hit the river behind it, it killed everything. All the fish died, all the plant life died. It just sterilized the entire system. Everything died. And so they realized it was going to be a complete failure as a product. And so then they reinvented it as a weed killer. So now you have a chemical that binds up minerals so that it can't be used, you know, so it doesn't stick to the pipe, but it also, once chelated, can't be used by enzymes in the soil or bacteria or microbes. And we pour, start pouring that chemical into our soils in the late 1970s. And so we started not just sterilizing because it functions as an antimicrobial, so it kills bacteria, fungi, yeast, all kinds of things in soil. So it's sterilizing the soil, but it's also making this soil you know, nutrient deficient through chelating all these critical minerals. And so we start that in the 1970s, 1980s, super effective weed killer you know, because it, it blocks a, a pathway called the shikimate pathway, which is an enzyme pathway that exists in bacteria, fungi, and plants that allow for the essential amino acids to be made. The aromatic amino acids, which include phenylalanine, tyrosine, tryptophan, these little essential amino acids are the critical building blocks to all proteins in our body. Each of you sitting there right now have about 400,000 different proteins in your body that are made from just 22 amino acids. 22 amino acids, you can almost picture the alphabet, right? So you got you know, 26 letters in the English alphabet, you can build 400,000 words, no problem. You just reorganize them and spell all kinds of different words. Well, there's five vowels in the English language, and those five vowels, if, if you eliminate two of those, you start to misspell all the words, right? If you eliminate an X and a Z, you might screw up my name and a couple other things, but you, the consonants don't screw up that many. But if you start to, to delete the vowels that are necessary in every single word, you really start to screw up the entire language. And that's what's happening with glyphosate. Glyphosate blocks the essential amino acids, which are the vowels within the amino acids. These are the ones that have to be used over and over again and cannot be made by humans. Human cells cannot make the, the essential amino acids. That's why we call them essential. We have to get them from our food or the microbes within our gut. And so the, the essential amino acids started to be deleted from biology 
in the 1970s and then full out in the 1990s when we genetically engineered our corn, soybean, sugar beets, all of our crops to be sprayed directly with Roundup. So now our food is carrying a chemical that blocks the ability of that food and our gut microbes and the rest to make the essential amino acids. So we started misspelling the proteins of the body in the 1990s in an incredible way. And that's hard on an immune system and on an adult. But imagine now a woman who's pregnant and she's eating food that's that's drenched in glyphosate. And that is blocking the ability of her uh, food system and microbes to build the essential amino acids, therefore the proteins of a fetus developing in her womb. What does a child look like who has misspelled the majority of their proteins? That child looks like the child of today. That child has, you know, 52% of kids, you know, when screened universally in our Medicaid programs or in Germany, for example, where they have universal health care, it's much easier to screen universally. Uh, we're hitting about 52 to 54% of children with a chronic disorder or disease by the time they're 17 now. In the 1960s, that was around 2%. So we've gone from 2% to 52% of children with disease when we started misspelling the proteins and enzymes that would build a healthy human body in the 1990s, 2000s, and now, of course, 20 years later, it's just like fire on the fire. And so we would we see in that you know uh, heavy chronic disease burden, we see one in 20 kids or one in 30 kids, depending on the study you look at, with an autism spectrum disorder. Their neurologic system is being poisoned uh, by their environment for a failure of their detox pathways. Their enzymes of detoxification have failed fundamentally. Their, de- their, their fundamental uh, you know, production of Proteins in the gut lining to, to create a resilient gut barrier have failed, and those get further poisoned by glyphosate. So glyphosate has this cascade of events that's setting us up for failure of life, and it's become the primary chemical used on the planet now. We spray more glyphosate than any other chemical out there. It's around 4 billion pounds a year are sprayed into the soils of the earth. It's a water-soluble toxin, so it shows up in our river systems. In the United States, a good example is the Mississippi, which is our largest river system. starts up in the Dakotas and Minnesota and, and uh, Wisconsin. And then you know all those tributaries from about 85% of our farmland go down into a single river that, of the Mississippi that ends the last 90 miles from Baton Rouge to New Orleans, which is now the highest cancer rates in the entire world along that river. And so we have decimated life along that river system with a water-soluble chemical that undermines human biology at all these levels. It, it kills the microbes of the soil, chelates all the essential minerals, blocks the ability to make the essential amino acids, destroys the tight junction Velcro system that holds our gut lining and blood-brain barrier together. So we get leaky gut, leaky brain, we get leaky kidney, and we can't detoxify. And then, it, and then finally, it, it does direct damage to the intracellular environment. It undermines the health of, of the, the little bacteria-like guys that live inside our cells called mitochondria. And the mitochondria can't produce energy. And when, when the glyphosate poisons those guys, now you've started the whole cascade of cancer. And so you've, you've lost cellular connections and you can't produce energy inside the cell at the same level that is a cancer cell. And so we have done this to ourselves. We have thoroughly poisoned ourselves because of the inconvenience of weeding. And so we wanted a good weed killer and we can blame the farmers, but it turns out that American households are spraying way more of this per acre than you know, like 10X or 100X, the numbers are insane, amount per acre of grass and, and backyard lawn than the farmers are using. So backyard gardens and backyard lawns have become this natus of poisoning of our municipal water systems 
as we pour this stuff into our gardens and we go spray down our driveway to kill the seven dandelions growing up in the cracks of the sidewalk. That washes right down into our gutter system and ends up in our municipal water supply and our children are drinking the weed killer that's destroying the, the biologic effects. And so it's a dark story on a lot of levels, but also tells us something beautiful, which is there are checks and balances in nature. We cannot go and poison her and we cannot sterilize the planet and not fail in our own health. Thank God for that, because it would be such a tragedy to destroy the planet. The beauty here has existed for 4 billion years. The beauty of this planet for 4 billion years. And we just showed up 200,000 years ago. We're like a blink in time in the beauty of this planet. And I'm just so grateful in the end that for all of our hubris and all of our destruction, Mother Nature built checks and balances such that if we became so destructive and so crazy that even our, our scientific innovations would destroy the fabric of nature, there would be checks and balances that would prevent us from surviving that ourselves. And we would destroy ourselves faster than the rest of nature and nature will recover. And I am so grateful for that because I want there to be monkeys in the trees in a thousand years. I want there to be lizards in the grass in a thousand years. I want this planet to be a vibrant garden of Eden again. And I want it to reverse out of the 97% of depleted and damaged soils of arable land that we've created over the last four decades. 97% of the arable lands are either depleted or severely depleted around the world now. We cannot do that and survive, which is good. It, it is appropriate that we would die in the midst of that. But also, incredibly, it shows us a very direct path back to health and back to resilience and back to a regenerative world where we stop poisoning the soils and we start embracing those soils and the soils will immediately return health at a 10x, 100x, 1000x level of the poisoning that we can condition. And that's what we get to see in our laboratory. We work with microbial extracts and these, uh, these little carbon compounds made by bacteria and fungi. And we extract those out of fossil soil and we put those back into human systems. And so these sterile Petri dishes of cancer cells or vascular cells or blood-brain barrier, whatever we're studying, we put back in microbial intelligence and we get to see something that's never been witnessed in any laboratory in the world before is spontaneous healing. Human cells begin to spontaneously and robustly heal and regenerate as soon as they have the communication network of the microbial world. And it, it fixes everything. It's crazy the way in which the cells repair each other so fast and they share resources immediately. As soon as they have communication, they know how to fix the whole system. They take care of one another in such a beautiful way. When we stop spraying glyphosate and all of the other herbicides and pesticides and we let life begin to embrace life again, the healing will be so fast and so radical. It, what took us 50 years to destroy will come back in just a decade. It will be so fast that we see the recoveries of the plant if we stop our collective behavior. And that's just thrilling to me. So as dark as the glyphosate story is, it's showing us in the end something about nature's design, her checks and balances and her grace. What grace would be in a nature that would 50 million years ago plant an antidote to Roundup in her soils? And we've shown that if we take those, those carbon substrates out of those fossil soils, put it into this human cell uh, system of intel intelligent uh, gut barrier, and then put glyphosate on it, nothing happens. It's completely resilient against Roundup. If we you know, take that same membrane and put glyphosate on it, it blows it apart, creates leaky gut, and then we add back the communication network, it immediately repairs all the damage. And so this preventative and reparative is this 
communication network of the microbiome that was planted in her soil 60 million years ago. What kind of grace would say 60 million years ago, here in my soils, I'm going to plant something beautiful for you that will heal the soils when you go and poison them in 60 million years. I mean, that's, that's the level of intelligence of this planet. Did she see us coming? Did she know that we might be like this? Perhaps. But she built systems of repair and resiliency in there that would preempt and, and if not predict, uh, the stupidity of our species. And, and I find that to be perhaps my best example or definition of grace. If I will give you the gift before you do the damage, what does that say about me? If I will give you the gift knowing you will destroy me, you will make the effort to destroy me, I will give you a gift to reverse out of that. I will give you a gift of resiliency like and Jesus. regeneration for your children, despite yeah. what you will do to me. That, yeah. that, there is some intensely beautiful grace in there and, and just a forgiveness from Mother Nature that's uh, really abundant and, and waiting to be handed to us. Yeah, it's like the story of Jesus, you know, like giving the gift of his life to only be murdered by humans. And um, yeah, it's it's powerful too, you know, just I was making the connection of mother nature. And um, when you were talking about how most people are operating within the masculine paradigm, and we've sort of removed ourselves from the feminine paradigm, I'm reading um, Women Who Run With The Wolves, which is really profound. And it's really beautiful how she talks about our severance from mother nature is much aligned to our severance from the divine feminine. And as soon as we learn to honor the divine feminine, we honor mother nature. And really the ways in which we've dishonored mother nature are aligned to the ways in which we've dishonored the divine feminine. And I think there's a lot of connection and correlation there. Did you know that the drugs we take to manage period cramps were invented in the 1950s and exclusively tested on men? <laughs> what? It's literally outrageous that there hasn't been more innovation when it comes to periods. Daloon is changing that with dietitian formulated solutions that relieve our symptoms while actually supporting cycle health. Because our cycles affect every aspect of our wellness, period pain, mood, sleep, skin, metabolism, energy, and more. I, I don't know about you, but you know, some, some months I'm like, oh my gosh, like everything has to stop, but it really can't because I'm experiencing, you know, really bad cramps or headaches, fatigue, you, bloating, you name it. I've really tried a lot of things and while I think I've gotten most of my symptoms under control, it doesn't mean they still don't happen and kind of disrupt my flow. So I was really excited to find Daloon and recommend it to a lot of my friends and they have been absolutely loving it. I was talking to a friend the other day that experienced like really, really bad periods, cramps and just all these symptoms. And she was so happy uh, to try Daloon. She's noticed that her symptoms have subsided. They don't last as long. They're not as intense and she can really just be in her life, which is really nice. So Deloon Nutritional Solutions are dietitian formulated to work with your cycle health, not against it. It'll help you all month long while also relieving your cramps and PMS during your period. Deloon creates effective drug-free supplements for period cramps, PMS, and optimal cycle health. So you can get the relief you need naturally, which I'm all about, and start feeling like your best self. 
So if you want high potency, fast acting supplements for your period cramps, PMS, and really getting your cycle health in its prime top condition, like 92% of their customers report that relief, try to loon. Leave bad periods behind and start the new year off with 23% off. Go to cyclehealth.com slash almost 30 and use the code almost 30 to get 23% off plus free shipping. If Deloon isn't the right match for you, your money back is guaranteed. That's cyclehealth.com slash almost 30 and use the code almost 30 to get 23% off plus free shipping. I mean, we could go go on forever. <laughs> and I'm really grateful that you provided that really beautiful example of, of the beauty of Mother Nature and sort of the grace that we've been gifted to exist on this earth and experience her. My last question for now, would love to have you on again, but I would love to just end with some of the ways in which you show um, reverence for Mother Nature and for you know life and spirit and as like an inspiration for our audience for how they can take um, a positive step moving forward once they've sort of acclimated themselves to this information? Uh, I think, you know, there's many ways to be reverent in nature for sure. And, you know, one of the more important things that's happened in my life was the message that came through a colleague of mine who was doing some extraordinary work in the meditation field and was coming back with conversations with saints and angels and all kinds of stuff. And he would get these direct messages for people. And he called me up one day and and said, I needed to travel to Utah to to sit down with him, to hear a message that had been uh, told to him to be told to me. And he said, you know, Zach needs to know this. And it was um, a discussion with Christ that he had in this deep meditative state. And, uh, it solved for my biggest existential crisis that I would was having in my life at this point and really for decades, but I had re- reached this fever pitch of frustration about the concept of love. And I, uh, I was being told by everybody from shamans to John Lennon that love was you know, the fabric of everything and everything is love. And I wasn't seeing evidence of that. I wasn't seeing love as I understood it practiced by humans for sure. And I'm looking at the way in which we treat each other. I'm looking at my own inability to communicate with my own children or my wife or, you know, my, if love is the fabric of everything, why is it so hard to connect to? Why, what, what is the failure here? And so I was really fearful that my God, I think we have the wrong freaking model here. I don't think love is the center thing love is important, but if it was the fabric of everything, it would everything would express it all the time. It wouldn't be an effort. And and so I flew to Utah and sat down with my my friend up there in Park City, a beautiful you know scene. And I, I was so anticipating this. I, there was something deep in me that knew this was. I didn't know what he was going to say. I didn't know that it had anything to do with this love thing or anything else. But I knew that I had flown there with this great sense of anticipation. And. He had kind of kept me on pins and needles because I'd been there for two days before he finally sat down with me to tell me this thing. And I'd be like, why aren't we talking about the most important thing? I was on the way to the airport and said, let's stop at this cafe. So we stop at this cafe and we sit down and uh, he said, you know, I had this incredible conversation with Christ. And he said, tell Zach that the fabric of the universe is not made of love. And I immediately had like goosebumps all over my body and was just like, oh my gosh, this is the next thing that comes out of this guy's mouth is the most important thing I will ever hear. 
and and Christ said to to my friend, he said, you know, uh, the fabric of everything is beauty. And the experience of seeing beauty is love. And it immediately, I just burst out crying. I, I just, I cried harder than I've ever cried in my life in this crazy cafe in Park City, Utah, bawling, just messy crying. And it's not coming down my face. And I just could not stop crying. I couldn't b- breathe. I couldn't talk. I just had this massive emotional release because I had been so afraid that we we didn't know the system. We, we were failing in love because we couldn't connect to it. And this was a, such a simple solve. And so what is it to be reverent to nature is simply to see that the fabric of it is beauty. And if you can go find the beauty in a leaf or in a crystal that you pull out of the bottom of the river, if you can feel the beauty of the water running by your hand in a running stream, if you haven't felt that recently, Go do that, please. It is insane feeling living water flowing across your fingertips. It's electric. It literally has energy within it and you can feel it. Remember that you can feel that. Feel the energy of nature. You can feel her intelligence in that water as it streams by your fingertips. Then go walk in that. Dive into that waterfall. Steep in that and see the beauty in the ways in which dew shimmers on the grass. if you, if you are far from a natural system, go to a park and lay down in the early morning at dawn and watch the dew rise out of the earth and, and then watch the dawn light hit that, that grass. The beauty is insane. It, it defies all capacity of communication. We do not have a vocabulary that allows for you to describe the beauty you will see in a droplet of dew or in that spider web uh, that hangs from the tree or in that flower that blossoms in the morning. You don't have the words, nor do you actually even have the neurologic capacity to see enough of that beauty to really inherently know all of it. The insect, the the honeybee that goes and finds that flower can see so much more of that flower than you can because it does not see color. It sees infrared and ultraviolet emanations from that, that plant that you cannot see. The beauty around you is dumbfounding. And if you will just be witness to it for a moment, you will experience the most pure form of love you've ever had. In that, you will find a reverence for life. You will find a reverence for yourself. You showed up right now at the tipping point of all things. As horrific as this story may sound that we shared together today, as sad and tragic and heartbreaking as some of that is, we all showed up right here, right now. 7.8 billion souls showed up right now to be in fellowship, to get the hugs in, to, to, to dive back into nature, to reintegrate our society, our culture, our humanity into nature again. And in so doing, we will heal at a pace that has never been witnessed before. We will be conscious on a level that's never been experienced before because we will be informed by that grace, by that beauty. We will find the love and the reverence within that nature as we start to just relax. And you may have to start it yourself. If you're anything like me, the thing that you have the most difficulty loving is it's you. And so challenge yourself to find the beauty in yourself today. Please, before you put your makeup on, find the beauty in your face. I love the way in which freckles and wrinkles happen. They are beautiful. I love the face of an elder. 
Why did we discredit that? When did we fear having a face of an elder? When did we fear the face of wisdom? How much effort are we doing to cover up our wrinkles and our spots? And yet, when we look at a grandmother, we only see beauty. We know the beauty is there. Why are we resisting that emergence of beauty, of wisdom, and life lived and experience had? Why are we fearing that? What are we trying to cover up? We need to uncover our own beauty. We need the tracks of nature to be across our face. I want the sunspots to be seen because that is record of my worship of that sun. I want the wrinkles to be there because they are evidence of the, the emotional journey of being human. I can record the smiles that I've had uh, at the corners of my eyes. I can record the worry that I've had over my own children and over humanity itself and, and the deep lines between my eyes. This is the record of being human, and it's beautiful. And we need to see that beauty in one another. We need to remind each other of it. Before your partner puts on makeup, before your partner goes and puts on all the fancy clothes, tell them they look beautiful naked. Tell them that their body is a record of of the beauty of being alive. The stretch marks are a record of growth. and They are a record of of, uh, change. The scar tissues that we see around our body, that's record of resilience and regeneration and repair. We are exquisitely beautiful in our nature. And we need to learn how to, to metric that as a society again. We need to start to embrace and re-embrace life as it tracks across our faces and across our skin. The backs of the hand of an elder, how beautiful is that? Those wrinkled hands and the softness of their skin when they hold your hand while they're dying at the bedside. What beauty is in that? Who doesn't want to touch that hand as it dies? You remember what it feels like to put your, your young face against your grandmother's face? Remember what that felt like after the last two years? You might not remember. So go and touch your grandmother. Go love her. Go be with her. Uh, We have to remember that to be human is to have a tactile experience. To be human is to have a sensory experience. Our entire brain is designed for sensory experience. The sight, the sound, the touch, the taste. Our whole brain is wired to be a sensory organ. If we are not sensing the world around us, we are not alive and we are certainly missing the beauty and we are therefore feeling unloved, unlovable. We cannot love others because God damn it, we are not fucking touching it. And I feel that intense about all of it is it is that big of a miss. You are not alive right now. You are not in love with yourself right now. And I am not in love with myself right now. Because we are not in it together enough. Touch your face right now and love yourself. You are alive right now. And if we do not start to suck the marrow out of life and start to live it, it will disappear in such an effervescent and rapid fashion. There will be no children in another 50 years. We will be sterile in that next 30 to 40 years. We will be sterile. There will be no more human life. We could be 80 to 100 years from that, you know, that final extinction event. And it was all because we failed to see the beauty. Perhaps most of all, we failed to believe and trust in the beauty within ourselves. We were made within the template of nature, within her beauty. And we were made to express her intelligence and her collective wisdom higher than any species has been able to on the planet before. And if we disappear, 
I want you to take trust and faith in the beauty again. Because after every extinction event, there's been five massive extinction events on the planet. The genetic record that's left behind is the virome. And the virome rebuilds life on the planet. The genetic record of stress increases the amount of genetic variability. Stress, especially at an extinction level, increases the genetic capacity and possibilities of life on Earth. And look at the record that we have of what that has created. After every extinction event, life comes back more robust, more intelligent, more beautiful. After the, the, the last extinction, the dinosaurs disappeared. And if I was in my masculine archetype looking at that, I'd be like, damn, those triceratops were so cool. Let's go create those again. But nature did not struggle back to the dinosaurs. She made a quantum leap forward after 97% of life on the earth disappeared. She made a quantum leap forward for the record of potential left in the virome. And the viruses rebuilt life. Deciduous trees were born. Flowering plants were born. The mammals were born. The capacity for live birth in a mammal took 17 different viruses to update the, the genome of, of living life forms to allow for a live birth to occur from moving from an egg type phenomenon with the, eight, the birds and the reptiles to have that first live birth. 17 new viruses had to be you know, placed, and it was probably 17,000, but we've already found 17 critical viral, viral updates that were necessary to allow us to have that first live birth. That, that's the beauty that nature did next. This great extinction. Imagine the leap from dinosaurs to the human. What goes from human to what next? There's a paradigm leap in possibility on this planet that is so beautiful we cannot imagine it. What comes after the deciduous trees? What comes after the flowering plants? How much more beautiful can it get? We could stay to play and see that. If we stop our behavior now and reintegrate into nature and find our own beauty again and fall in love with one another for real, we could, uh, we could stop the extinction event and we could see the explosion of nature come after this. We could be part of that explosion of possibility that we've created out of the virome. The stress that we've created has created more potential for life. That is the grace of nature. Let's stay in play and let's see what Garden of Eden we can create with her as we become co-creators instead of consumers. Go create with nature today. Don't buy something today. Go create with her today. Plant a seed. I, stack a stack of rocks in the river and see the river move those. Play with nature today. Go outside and, and revisit your beauty. You don't even know yourself yet. Society has not let you see it. Just as I was not able to be a physician after 17 years in academics, nobody had shown me my potential to be a healer. They had only taught me to treat disease. You don't know what lies within you because society has made sure you don't know your own power. You are a force to be reckoned with, and you are graceful, and you are beautiful. And if I could touch every one of your faces, I would, out of just a reverence, out of just awe of Oh my God, you are so beautiful. And you showed up right now. Thank you for the courage that it took to show up at the tipping point of all things. Thank you for being willing to listen to nature and see her and follow her into a different path for humanity. Thank you for finding yourself behind the makeup, behind the products, behind the clothes. Find yourself, love yourself. And for that, we will find our beauty and we'll find the reverence for humanity as much as nature.
Thank you so much, Dr. Zach Bush. We really appreciate you, your time, your energy, your work in the world. You can find more at ZachBushMD.com. Follow him on Instagram at ZachBushMD. And share this with a friend, family member. I know some of these conversations can be hard to start. And so sending them a podcast might be a really beautiful way to start a conversation and a nice launching pad. Yes. You know? And thank you for subscribing, rating, and reviewing. It means a lot to the show. And we're so glad that you're part of the Almost 30 community. You can find more information about Almost 30 at almost30.com. Yes. And thank you so much to our sponsors. These are brands that Krista and I have vetted ourselves for you. They are brands that we use and love and believe in. You can find all discount information in our show notes as well as on almost30.com. We love you. See you soon. Bye. 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 